Jesus Christ. And so that's what we've been talking about through this series that we have been doing called Come to Worship. Now, Come to Worship actually comes from the um, story of the Nativity. It is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, now say it with me, and have come to worship him. So what we are doing right now is something that happened at the very beginning at the birth of Christ. The wise men came to worship him. And so we have been talking about various ways in which we can worship Jesus Christ throughout this series. Uh, when we began a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this whole idea of, of bringing to Jesus lifted up hands in worship. And so we lifted up hands in worship to Jesus, right? Well, okay, some of us did, right? Yes. Not everybody did, I know, that's okay. Uh, it is an aspect of worship. Last week when we were together, we talked about this idea to bring our gifts in worship. And somehow, some way, Pastor Bill managed to insert a giving message at Christmas. So I'm not sure exactly how, how that happened, but it happened. And yet it's a very wonderful way to honor Jesus Christ. When we get together on Christmas Eve, our worship services, we will spend some time learning to bend the knee to Christ, our King. It's going to be a glorious night. First hour, uh, 5 o'clock hour, will be our, our contemporary service with a children's message. At the 8 o'clock hour will be the equivalent of this service with bells, orchestra, choir, in everything. So it's going to be a really, really fun night. And so I pray that you're already thinking about who to invite and who will join you uh, at that time. We will talk about what it means to bend the knee to Jesus Christ, the King. If you have missed the messages over the last couple of weeks, I just want to highlight again that we as a church have put together something called an app, an application. And it's for your smartphone. Whether it's an Android or an iPhone, uh, you can simply go to whichever store it is and type in Grace Church Waldorf. And there you will discover that we have this little application you can download, put on your phone. When you touch it, it'll show you, I'm new, and there's some things there, contact, some things there, give, Bible, and messages. And so you can click on the message, and what you can do is simply click on it. They're all there from all the weeks, and you will discover... And verse 2, these words, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means. And so, you will discover that all the messages that we have are there. So, if you miss a week or want to share a message, it can be found on the church app. I just want to say that in the turn of the new year, it is our hope that we will start capturing video from Sunday mornings. And then we will start uploading it either live or we will put it on our website. Just because so much of what happens here on a Sunday morning tends to be visual, and we want to give everybody that full impact as well. So we've been talking about ways to worship. Lift your hands in worship. Bring your gifts in worship. We're going to talk about bending the knee in worship today. Today, we're going to talk about pouring out our heart. Pouring out our heart. Uh, you may not know this, and this may be new to you, and you may think, why on earth are we talking about this on Christmas? But lament, 
the lament of a heart is very much worship. We're going to go into the depths of Scripture, and I pray into the depths of our hearts in the next few minutes. And we're going to discover perhaps a new way to worship Jesus Christ that we didn't even know was a form of worship. But before we do, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray together, and let's ask God for guidance. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being together here this morning. Father, we could be in so many other places, and yet here we are. I honestly believe that every one of us is here, not by accident, but rather through the work of the Holy Spirit, here we are. And I just pray in the next few moments as we open your word and consider a topic that's often not spoken about, that maybe you would actually bring things to the surface, deal with things in the depths of our being that maybe have been left undealt with. I pray for liberty from the Holy Spirit today to teach us this form of worship, a very, very powerful form of worship. Help us, I pray, Father. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said, amen, amen. amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this topic to pour out your heart. Now, this actually comes again from David, the great psalmist, the, the warrior king, the, the, the pursuer of God, this, this man who often had a lot of brokenness in his own life. And David said this in Psalm 62, verses 7 and 8. Notice, on God rests my salvation. Amen? Salvation is of the Lord. It rests on him and my glory. It's not about me, it's about him. My mighty rock is he. He is, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people, and say it with me, pour out your heart before him. Why? Because God is a refuge for us. Now that word refuge has various meanings, but what I want you to understand is what God provides for us in a relationship with him through Jesus Christ is a safe place, a safe place where we are permitted to pour out our hearts with no fear or rejection, with no fear that somehow God will shut us down. We are given the privilege of a wonderful, safe place Place by God to be open and honest and transparent and frank with God himself. So we have this statement, pour out your hearts before him for God is a refuge for us. And then we have this little word that's often found in the Psalms, and it is simply the little word selah. We don't know exactly what it means. But we believe because the Psalms were basically songs or hymns that it's some kind of a musical rest. In a real way, what it is, it is a pause for reflection. So after a powerful statement has been made, God is a refuge that we can pour out our hearts to. It says, Selah, think about it. Let your mind dwell on that. And so as I was preparing for this morning, I did that. I read this and I thought, yeah, I can pour out my heart. God is my refuge. He's my safe place. Think about it. And I went back in my mind. And I went back to a play uh, throughout my childhood, and I thought about all the various places I used to run when I was a child, when I was afraid. 
And you know, we often become fearful. We often become uh, frightened. And the question is, where do you run when you get scared? Where do you go when, when life is happening and you don't know what to do? And I was thinking back, and I was thinking back when I was five years old, and I made one of those five-finger turkey drawings. You know what those are, right? You put out your hand like that, and you draw the turkey feathers and the turkey head and put a gobbler on them, you know? I drew one of those as a five-year-old, colored it in, cut it out, and my mother hung it up on my door to my bedroom. I remember so clearly as if it happened yesterday. I was in bed when all of a sudden the light from the living room was coming into my room. It caught the, the fingers on this, this bird, and it cast an image on my wall, and the image it cast was a gun. And I was sitting there in bed thinking, I'm going to die. I have no idea where that goes. So I remember pulling my blankets up over my face and, and kind of hiding and, and like this. And I pull it down. It was still there. And I put it back up. It was still there. I was scared to death. I climbed under my bed. I'm thinking, you can't get me here. And I kept looking and it didn't go away. And I kept looking and it didn't go away. Finally, I poured out my heart. Mom! And my refuge came running, and she grabbed me and swallowed me up, and I felt safe, and she went over and she killed that old turkey. <laughs> so early on in my life, when I would get frightened, I would hide under the covers, I would hide under the bed, I would cry out to my mother who became my refuge when I was scared. When I got a little bit older, uh, when I was about nine years of age, uh, there was this boy in middle school that didn't like me. I, you know, I don't know why. I'm a very likable kind of guy, you know. Maybe not so much when I was nine years old. I don't know. His name was Patrick McPhee, and he was a dirty little Irish kid. I'm sorry. I don't mean to make fun of a particular group, but he was a scrappy guy, and he always had an anger issue. And one day, he looks at me, and he goes, I'm going to kill you. I'm like, what did I do? And, and so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh. Patrick McPhee is going to kill me. And he's got this little gang that kind of runs with him. So he's a tough kid. So the first thing I did when the bell rang at the end of the day is I made a beeline for home. I was running as fast as I could, but he tracked me down. And it was at the softball field at the school, and he was on one side of the fence, and I was on the other side of the fence. And I felt okay because he was on the other side of the fence, you know? And he was threatening me when all of a sudden he started climbing the fence. And he leaped down and landed right in front of me. He goes, I'm going to kill you, Walker. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? At that point, a good friend of mine by the name of Philip Larkin jumped between us and popped Patrick McPhee right in the nose, dropped him to the ground. He got up crying in a bloody nose and ran home. All of a sudden, I found another refuge. His name was Philip Larkin. You know, whenever Philip was around, I was good. I was good, man. You know, I was afraid of nothing because Philip was even more scrappy, and he was a friend. So, you know, as we kind of grow up, we have these places we run, people that we trust to become a refuge when we're frightened or scared or don't know what to do. When I got to be about 17, I started down that pathway called agoraphobia. And I, I, I discovered that people were my problem. How many would say people are your problem? No, don't do that. <laughs> Agoraphobia is an irrational fear connected to people. And so I would go through that whole fight or flight, psychological, biological thing that would kick in, and I would discover people caused this reaction in me. So I would flee. I would run. And I would run to my bedroom. My bedroom, when I was 17 years of age, became my safe place. 
But the sad part is, is as the uh, psychological condition progressed, my safe place, my bedroom, turned into my prison cell. It got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And what I thought was actually a safe place was exactly the opposite. It became my prison cell. On June the 6th, 1985, I discovered that there is a better hiding place. And the hiding place I discovered that night through the preaching of Billy Graham was Jesus. I, I almost felt like these are the words I, I said. In Psalm 40, 142, verses 1, 2, and 5, With my voice I cried out to the Lord, and with my voice I pled to mercy to the Lord. I poured out my complaint before him. I told him my troubles. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You see, my covers, my bed, my mother, <laughs> Philip Larkin, my bedroom, they were all temporary shelters, but they weren't refuges. They didn't ultimately last. But there is one fortress. There is one refuge that ultimately, ultimately wins. And so I came to Christ. I began a journey that led to the conquering of my fears of agoraphobia. You know, we all have fears, don't we? We all have troubles. You know, if you don't have any right now, wait five minutes. It's kind of like the weather in Maine. Changes just like that. Life is like that. And you know, my troubles and my fears and my challenges are very different than yours, and yours are probably very different from mine. But we all look for a refuge. We all need a hiding place, somewhere, someone, something, that we can run to and find safety and comfort in when we need help. When trouble comes, when our money gets funny, when our marriage is in trouble, when our kids go rebellious, when the doctor gives us a diagnosis we don't like, we can hide under our beds. But you know what I discovered as I get older? It's harder to do. The bed seems to have gotten shorter, or I've gotten bigger, and my knees don't work as well. So I, that's just not a great place to run. But as adults, we run into other things. We run into a bottle of pills, a bottle of alcohol. Uh, maybe we can even run into a relationship. But there's only one person who is truly safe, one place that we can truly find help, and that is with the person of Jesus Christ. And he longs to give us a place of safety, a safe place where we can be as open and honest and vulnerable and real as our feelings will allow us. He wants us to be ultimately honest with him. And right now, some of you are probably thinking, yeah, but you know, Pastor Bill, there are certain things that are on my heart that if I ever said them to God, I'd be, I'd be struck with lightning. There are certain things you're not allowed to say to God, right? You know, if I really express myself to what I really feel and what's I'm, what I'm going through, you know, I'd be a French fry by the time God was done with me. Not true. Not true. Not true. He is our refuge, our safe place. Pour out your heart to him. I love the scriptures. I love the scriptures. Abraham, before God, over his nephew Lot in the town of Sodom, he pled with God and he wrestled with God and he bargained with God to get it down to a place where his nephew could be rescued. 
And God didn't say, don't do that, Abraham. He actually encouraged it. David, throughout the Psalms, was angry and disappointed and fault-finding and disagreeable. David, you can't say that stuff. But he did. But he did. There's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. An entire book of brokenness, of pouring out a heart before God in the midst of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And you're like, but you're not supposed to talk like that to God. Says who? God doesn't want platitudes. He wants your heart. He wants the truth. He wants the real, real thing. Now, we're going to focus in in the next few minutes together on Psalm 77. So if you have your Bibles... Uh, We're going to focus in on Psalm 77 together. What I'd like to say to you about the Psalms is this. Uh, There are various categories that Psalms fall into. The largest category of Psalms in the book of Psalms is something called lament. 65 of 150 Psalms are dedicated to lamenting before God. 43% of all the material of the hymn book of Israel was lament. This is hardly positive hips, 91.9, you know? Yippee, skippy, woohoo, we're all having a good time, right? That's not real. That's not life. The Psalms are life. The Psalms are real. The Psalms tell us the truth about this thing called life. Uh, D.A. Carson, a wonderful uh, theologian, said this, there is no attempt in Scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. Theirs was not a faith that led to dry-eyed stoicism. God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We can do that, and it's true. But that's not what God wants to hear. God doesn't want to hear good theology. He wants to know our hearts. And I love what he says here. D.A. Carson says this. So a faith that is very robust is one that wrestles with God. We often think it's a weakness of our faith to express such words. And yet D.A. Carson picked up on the scripture and said, no, it's just the opposite. It is a real faith that's willing to wrestle with God. It is a growing and deepening faith. Back in April, uh, I took Elisha to Chicago where we went to Moody Bible Institute. And we got a tour of the campus, and uh, he has made application. We hope to hear back next month as to whether or not he's been accepted to go to MBI next year uh, for schooling. While we were on campus, um, we got the full experience, sat in a classroom, ate with the students, had tours, that whole thing. But we also sat in a chapel. In the chapel uh, at Moody Bible Institute there in Chicago, they had invited in a, a seminary professor, uh, an Asian gentleman who had his training in, in the Boston area. He had just written a commentary on Lamentations. I mean, who's going to read that, right? (laughs) It's it's like the worst thing you can do is write a commentary on Lamentations because nobody's going to buy that. But what he said was this, and I didn't forget it. He said, throughout the ages, the church has known how to suffer. In America, with all of our positive praise songs and all of our positive professions, We don't know how to suffer well. And yet, suffering well is a big part of this thing called the Christian life. Psalm 77, 
Psalm 77. What we have here in Psalm 77 is a model, a model for us. Um, it is a psalm of Asaph, uh, who was one of David's uh, music directors uh, in the worship of Yahweh. We don't know exactly what was going on in his life, but whatever incident gave birth to Psalm 77, it was extremely painful and excruciatingly long. We don't know what it was. He doesn't reveal the actual cause of his pain, but he shows us how to express pain, how to deal with it in a healthy way. And so he begins with what I would say is simply this. We need to learn to tell him, tell God our pain. We need to learn to tell him. Notice with me, verses 1 through 9 of this uh, incredible, painful psalm. He begins this way, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Let me tell you what he's saying here. God, I hurt. God, I hurt, and I don't understand what's going on. He says, I cry how? I cry how? Yeah, loud. This is not little murmur. This is an expression of a broken heart. I am crying aloud to God. I cry aloud to God. And notice it says, he will hear me. It's not a good theology. And I know that the Lord hears the prayers of his children. That's not what he's saying. It says, and he will hear me. He's wrestling with God. He's pouring out his heart. Lord, you will hear me is what he's saying. Can you say that to God? This is in the scriptures to show us, yes, yes. So he begins that way. He goes, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Lord, I'm not giving up on this. Lord, I'm not going to stop reaching out to you. Lord, until I get a satisfactory answer, I'm not going to stop. I refuse to be comforted is what he's saying. When I remember God, I moan. The word moan there is actually kind of the mutter of an animal. It's an indistinguishable sound. And so in the very depths of his soul, he's run out of words. And now I'm just moaning because I'm in so much pain. When I meditate, my spirit falls faint. I'm hurt. I'm hurt deeply. I'm hurt very deeply. And God, I want you to know it. He is crying out to God with heartfelt words because God does not seem to be responding to his situation. And he even wondered whether God had abandoned him to his weakness and his misery. He felt absolutely alone in this struggle. Now, there's a word at the bottom there with a big period after. What's that word? Which means, let's pause. What about you? What about you? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not cool. It's not right. It's not theologically correct to question God. To come before God with your full vent and say, what's going on here, God? I don't understand this. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. You know, throughout the centuries of the church, there is this thing that's often referred to by the followers of Jesus Christ called the dark night of the soul. 
The dark night of the soul is a collapse of a perceived meaning in life. It is the eruption into your life of a deep sense of meaninglessness. It is that difficult invasion of God's astringent grace where now nothing makes sense anymore, and there seems to be no more purpose to anything that is designed by God to open us up to new realms of spiritual experience. And so this whole idea of, of God putting us in a place where we're pinned down, and, and we feel like we're lost and we're alone, and God's not responding, and the heavens are brass. It is a common experience amongst the people of God for a good purpose. God is trying to deepen our walk with him. He's trying to deepen our faith. He wants us to be open and honest and frank with him. He's not done. Notice he goes on to say this. You hold my eyelids open, and I am so troubled that I cannot speak. So what's he saying? I sleep well at night? I'm sleepless, and I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I cannot sleep. And he goes on to say this. I considered, and this is, this is true, I considered the days of old, the years long ago, and I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So what he's doing here is he's, he's reflecting back on his walk with God. And he said, I remember the good times. Oh, we're blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and things were so wonderful, and I would praise you, and things were awesome. What happened? What happened? What did I do? What did you do? He's in this place where he's not sure what to do, what's going on. He is wrestling in his soul. He's in the dark night of the soul. And now he has this moment where he's frightened. He has this, this uh, moment where all of a sudden he's scared. In my spirit, I made a diligent search. He, he's about to have a panic attack. Will the Lord spurn forever? and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Can you talk like that to God? He did. He did. Why? Because God is a refuge. He is a safe place where we can pour out our soul and be absolutely real and frank and honest and transparent with God. And that is exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Notice what he said. God, are you done with me? God, have you given up on me? What did I do? You mean there's no more love? There's no more promises to be fulfilled? Or gracious forgiveness for my wrongs? There's no more compassion? There's only anger? I'm speaking into some of your worlds right now because stuff is happening and it doesn't make any sense and you don't know what's going on or how you feel. All you know is you feel really weird and angry, resentful. Why? One writer put it this way. He said, God, it's not what it used to be. What was once true in regard to our relationship has passed. And it's not my present experience. He goes on to say this more particularly. It appears that God either has not the strength that is able to help 
or else he does not care to use it if he has it. To be in such a situation brings in uh, a most anguishing dilemma. The very ground of the psalmist's faith is beginning to erode, erode away. You're good, right? If you're good, why don't you help? Oh, you must not be powerful. But wait a minute, you're all powerful. Then why aren't you helping? He's wrestling. And I just want you to know, that's okay. This is how faith grows. This is how faith deepens. This is what God encourages us to do. His refuge is a safe place, to be completely honest. Tell him, tell him, pour out your heart to him. And I just want you to understand that this is nothing less than worship. This is how God wants you to worship him, holding back nothing of what you feel. He doesn't want platitudes. He doesn't want good theology thrown back in his face. He wants your heart. That's what God wants. I love what Michael Card says here. Michael Card, the wonderful singer, songwriter, and theologian, said this. We were created to live with God in a garden, and yet every morning we wake up in the desert of a fallen world. He says, think of lament as an essential ingredient of honest faith. It is the deepest sense that something is wrong, whether it's with yourself or with the world. He calls lament sacred sorrow. And lament is larger than simply feeling sorry about your sin. It's meant to encompass your pain, hurt, confusion, anger, betrayal, despair, and injustice. Lament is not about psychology, according to Card. Simply getting it off your chest. Please listen. Lament is about true worship. Offering up as a sacrifice your brokenness and pain to God. Lift your hands in worship. Bring your gifts in worship. Pour out your hearts. This is true worship. Tell him, tell him, tell him, be frank, be honest, be real with him. He already knows. And now we start to transition in the psalmist experience. He now moves into an area where he's learning to trust him in his mind. His experience doesn't help him to trust him, but in his mind, he's learning to trust God. Notice what he goes on to say. And then I said, notice this, I am sick by the thought that the sovereign one might be inactive. Can you talk like that? I'm just sick of it. Sick, 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 sick. And so what he's saying here is basically this. I refuse, I just refuse to believe that God is indifferent or impotent when it comes to my situation. He will not give in to the fears of doubt. He will not give in completely to the sense that his faith will erode away. No, I believe, I believe, I believe that God is good and he is active and he will answer me. 
This is moving from that place of just brutalness into a place of trusting God. And so we have some very important words in this next section. Notice what he says. I will, an act of the will, remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. What he's doing right now is he's actively choosing to believe that God is at work in his situation. I will, I will, I will, I will remember, I will ponder, and I will meditate on your mighty deeds because you are truly an amazing God. So he refuses to believe that God is indifferent. Notice, your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. He's reminding himself of these important truths. I like Psalm 145, verse 17. It says this, The Lord is just in all his actions, he, and he exhibits love in all he does. God, by very nature, is holy, just, and loving. I know he cares. And next, he refuses to believe that God is impotent to this situation. You are the God who works wonders. Amen? You have made known your might amongst the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. What he's doing here, again, is he's rehearsing the redemption of Israel, the reality that God can rescue. And he's replaying that over and over again inside his heart. The next word there is what? What about you? It's easy. It's easy to get bitter. It's easy, it's easy to walk away. It's easy, it's easy to give up. But true faith, growing faith, deepening faith, wrestling faith, robust faith, says, I won't give up. I'm pursuing you, and I'm going to lay hold of you because I know you are good, and I know you can make a difference. And that's exactly what he's doing. What about you? What has gone on in your life that led to the dark night of your soul? Most of us have had that experience one way or the other. Did you just stuff it and move on with indifference in this whole walk? Or did you confess it and give it and spew it back to God? Do you remember his redemption of your life? Do you remember seeing him work in the past? Do you remember seeing all the goodness of God at work in your life? Remember those days? He's the same God. It's just a different season for you. Sila, pause, think about it, dwell on it. Now he goes on, and I love this part, man. He's reflecting on God, and he gets all excited just because he knows how powerful God really is. Notice this. Hey, when the water saw you, O oh God, when the water saw you, hey, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the whole world. The earth trembled and shook. That's my God. That's what he did. And that's what he can do for me. And then he tidies it up with these last few verses. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. 
The psalmist went from doubting God's heart and sovereign power to realizing God is a great and redeeming God and a gracious shepherd. And so what the psalmist is telling us about lamenting is simply this, tell him and trust him. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is, we all have something, tell him, tell him, tell him, and trust him, trust him, trust him. I just want to say, this Psalm 77 is condensed. He took a full experience and condensed it into just a few verses. It takes like three minutes to read it, you know? So you read through it, and it's like, wow, dude, that happened fast for that guy. He went through this really hardship, and all of a sudden he twisted around and turned, saw God's goodness, and that was it. I just want you to know that this is a bit like a sitcom. You know, 23 minutes to pose a problem and solve it. That, that's what sitcoms do. Well, Psalms are a little bit like that. They're very condensed. So what he expresses for us in a condensed form in his own life may have been three days, may have been 30 days, may have been three years. It may have been 30 years. We don't know. But we do know that God wants us to tell him, and we do know God wants us to trust him. And some of these seasons of the dark night of the soul are very long and very hard. I'm going to share with you my dark night of the soul. I was a young pastor in um, Virginia. And uh, in 2001, I took over a church of 30 people and led it to a church of over 300 people in three years. Saw God do amazing things. I saw people getting saved left, right, and center. I saw Hindus coming to Christ. I saw all these people who were getting baptized and going forward in their faith. It was absolutely amazing and dynamic, and I was so excited to be a part of that. In the middle of when things were just getting amazing, and I, I, we had plans to add onto the sanctuary and to change things and to, to map out the next five years, I had a youth pastor who chose to stab me in the back. He began currying favor out of the congregation and actually got a good-sized group of people to stand in opposition to me. We were on the cusp of hiring a worship pastor. His name is Ed Nall. Some of you might know that name. He used to lead a group called GLAD, an a cappella group called GLAD. He was ending his ministry, and he was looking to settle into local church ministry. And Ed Nall did a wanna in our church, and I said, hey, Ed, could you consider coming on staff? We need a worship guy. Hey, Bill, I'd love to. So we went through that whole process, and we got ready for the vote. And just as a vote was about to be taken, the youth pastor's wife stood up, screamed, my husband cannot work with that man, turned around in tears and walked out the back door, and half the women of the church followed her. The vote went, no. No, we'll not hire this guy. I was broken. I was absolutely broken. And I walked the streets of, of Lowe's Island, uh, over there off Route 7 in Virginia, many a night, crying out to God, why? Why? So much good was happening. So many great things were happening. I would walk into the church long before the sun rose in the morning, and I would lay on the platform, just like this. I would lay on the platform on my back, and just above was a cross. And I would lay below that cross, and I would scream at God, How dare you? What are you doing? It was my dark night of the soul. God was quiet. 
wouldn't respond. Things got worse. We ended up leaving that church. It took four years, four years, before I came out the other side of that situation to the light of day. You know, there's an old saying, and it's a good saying, God uses no one greatly until he has hurt them deeply. Because only then does he know that he can trust them with success and that he alone is that success. You're sitting there thinking, well, Pastor Bill, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> well, that's a great question. What does this have to do with Christmas? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Just prior to this, in Matthew chapter 1, we have the angel saying these words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Which means Christmas is about the incarnation. It is about God taking on human form. It is about God being born in a slum to peasant parents, experiencing all that goes with that. It is about him growing up and taking on a ministry life that the Bible says he became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus' life, God's life, the God who gives us life, ended up becoming a time of temptation, a time of rejection, a time of a struggling in the flesh, of a friend betraying him, of physical harm, and of a God who says, when he said to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus. The same one who invites us to himself and wants us to be absolutely open and honest and frank with him. I love these words from Jesus. Come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavily burdened, and I want to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to be your refuge. I want to be the one who covers you when you're frightened. Come to me. And why can he say that? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he without sin. Let us therefore in confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. This is what Christmas is about. God became man. And he didn't just take your sin and your guilt to the cross. He also took your sorrow and your grief to the cross. He's already dealt with it. He's already paid for it. Why are you holding on to it? Give it to him. Let him cleanse it and strengthen your faith in him. Israel was big on lamenting pouring out their heart before God. Oh God, I just hurt. I want to give you an opportunity in the next few minutes to just sit and listen 
um, I want to play a simple song for you, and it's a song of lament. And maybe the words being expressed are the very words that you can't give voice to in your own life. Use these next few minutes in the presence of God just to allow it to cleanse your heart. Take just a minute, please, and listen to these words from Lifehouse. Storm. Oh, how long have I been in this storm? So overwhelmed by the ocean's shapeless form. Water's getting harder to tread. With these waves crashing over my head If I could just see you Everything would be alright If I'd see you This darkness would turn to light
worshiping God with the sacrifice of our brokenness and our pain. Come to worship Christ the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you. In a season of happy little tunes, in a season of jingle bells and, and all is well, we live in a broken and fallen world. In the Christmas story, the incarnation is much deeper and broader than simply to save us from our sins, as amazing as that is. It's not meant to just change our destiny. It's meant to change our everyday life. And I pray right now, Father, for a heart or two or three in our midst this morning that have been walking through the dark night of the soul, that they will tell you, tell you it all, and that you would help them to trust you. Please, Father, we thank you now in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior and Lord, our great high priest. In his name, Father, and the people of God said, God bless you. Christmas Eve's a coming, and I just want to say we'll not talk about giving, and we're not going to talk about lamenting. We're going to talk about bending the knee. It's going to be a bright and cheery night, so please bring back your friends and family. God bless you.